Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How you do, how you feeling today, Trevor? I feel like I'm writing a check I can't cash. How are you, Mark? <laughs> I feel like permanent Legos. Permanent Legos? Like bricks? Done. <laughs> no, no, like uh, <laughs> zip, you, you know, put them together. It's like a zip tie. There's no turning back. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Actually, no do, do you remember... Do you remember, so we're from, uh, we grew up in Connecticut. Do you remember the Lego factory in Enfield, Connecticut? I do. Was there like a thing that it was like, it wasn't a full fledged like Lego world, but there was like some like displays outside of like Lego stuff and everything. Yeah. There was some giant bricks outside at like the driveway, but it's just like a factory. It doesn't like look cool, but it's right next, it's, it's right next to a prison. Oh. <laughs> like across the street from the from the prison there dude lego like secretly having the prisoners work on the legos yeah so as a kid you know you'd drive by i would drive like drive by and be fascinated by like the giant lego sculpture and then like some sort of negative emotion two seconds later like you look across the street <laughs> a barbed really wire weird fence. juxtaposition yeah weird juxtaposition for sure i feel like, like lego lego is the type of company that pays so much attention to detail that they would like actually care if you told them that they would be like oh that's horrible <laughs> No, it's it's very apparent. Like uh, they 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 had to know. They must have got a deal on the property or something. Yeah. But like you're saying, I wonder if like they have inmates like making like Lego man torsos instead of stamping license plates or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wonder about the overlap between those two places. You have two options. Like, you can work in the yard or you can go work on Legos. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And then that's like, I, that That might be, that's like the closest building. So like a prison break or something, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, for, that, that would be a good scene in prison break. He has to like get through. Do you watch that show? Uh, I haven't seen it, but I know, I, I know what it's about. First season is epic. Second season is crazy. Third <laughs> season is really crazy. And then fourth season is like absolutely insane like totally <laughs> off the rails it's almost like a good you could teach that in a class of like let's watch a show go crazy <laughs> <laughs> but um nice uh, i was also thinking about like like if that happened with a prison break like the people working at the lego factory could like barricade themselves in by building structures and stuff <laughs> <laughs> anyways yeah check it out enfield connecticut uh so anyways, this week, uh, we've got a new segment. It's sort of a game, one you can, I guess, participate in at your own leisure. And here it is. I mean, think of like your favorite book or one that you just hold in really high regard, like outside of criticism or whatever. And then go look it up on Amazon or something like that and filter by review. Find the worst reviews of the thing. <laughs> like set it to one star. Yeah, one or two find stars. Find the worst reviews. Yeah, find the worst reviews of the thing that you find like subjectively amazing and i the point of the game is that it's it's a free way to make yourself mad i guess i'm not sure <laughs> i think i like to read i don't what i think is the function of the game for me is that i you know thought of some of my favorite books and then it's like because you hold the book in such high regard you're not going to take any of these reviews seriously so they're just hilarious like, it, yeah. like, it's almost the easiest thing to ignore, just being like, yeah, whatever, dude. Obviously, we wouldn't get along. <laughs> yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny to get... Sometimes I get worked up over it, too. But, uh, yeah, so we, uh, Trevor and I both picked a couple books. Do you want to go first? 
Read some good reviews. Uh, sure, I'll go first. For my first one, I have I have two short reviews for the for my first book, and actually, I think with one ex- with some exceptions, some of mine um, some of mine I've done on the podcast. So this is a book that I've done on the podcast. My first one is um, My Struggle by Nosgard, book one. So I covered that in, let me see, which Not episode. too long ago. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. It was like a few weeks ago. Um, that was episode 17. And uh, so the first one star review, I, I, I like the title of it. There's nothing wrong with you if you hate this book. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, user F space P, so just FP. Uh, says, I bought this a while ago because of all the hype about how wonderful it was. Fortunately, I used my Kindle so I didn't waste much money. This is without a doubt the most boring, dull, and self-absorbed book I've ever opened. After 100 pages, I realized that people who find this captivating are probably mostly millennials who believe the entire world wants to see more pictures of their friends, their dogs, and their drinks on Facebook. Serious literature should enliven us and expand our minds and delight us with the author's genius as we remember the characters' lives reflecting our own. For a wonderful comparison and critique of this non-novel comparing this genre to Tolstoy, read this New Yorker essay. And then they sent a link. So if you want to read that, uh, user <laughs> FP on Amazon Prime. But the thing I actually, what I what I enjoyed about his negative, his or her negative review is that it's part of my positive review that it's definitely, I find Nosgard to be part of like the millennial trend of like navel gazing. Yeah. Like that's kind of the point, um, mm-hmm. like self examination. So I thought that was hilarious. And then the next one is from, is a quick one from user erstwhile. And the title is <laughs> clap. Tra- ones are great. Yeah. Clap <laughs> trap from a narcissist. And it says, don't waste your time. I regret the money I spent on the paperback and will not list it for sale as I don't want to make this junk available. <laughs> Nosgard is hailed as the new Prowse. I've read Prowse, most of it, and it's a singular work of genius. My struggle is narcissistic claptrap and should never have been published. Read Proust instead. <laughs> <laughs> claptrap twice. No. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many ways. There's there's a lot of variety in how you can like trash something. and uh, yeah. it's, it's very easy to trash just- something, yeah generalizations about who's reading it or who likes it. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. Uh, is that what you got for? Uh, that's Nosgard? all. That's what I have for Nosgard. Yeah, that's good. Um, so the first one I looked at was uh, Catch-22 because okay. I just wanted to see. I figured it'd be a lot of like high schoolers being like, I fucking hated this. But right. uh, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of good ones here. So user uh, username flag says, the book has been a huge seller. As a PhD in English, I say that it's an overlong piece of smart-ass, not very amusing junk. <laughs> <laughs> so he threw some like credentialism in there. That's like <laughs> he's got a PhD, so you know <laughs> I gotta trust that. Uh, <laughs> Juliet says maybe there's a reason this book is usually required high school reading. It reads like it was written by a seventeen-year-old. Someone who clearly finds himself to be hilarious, and no one ever had the heart to tell him differently. I never felt for any of the characters. I never laughed. I never cried. (laughs) In fact, halfway through the book, I couldn't take it anymore, so I skipped ahead to the last chapter, and yet it still made sense. I'm sorry, but if nothing happens in the second half of the book to impact the ending, then something is very wrong. (laughs) And I don't know. Like, There's something about the attitude that like 
stuff needs to happen for a book to have value or like right yeah i was gonna say i was gonna say there's probably a lot of really amazing novels that that would hold true for but that doesn't mean (laughs) i think that there's also a difference between um i think i've been thinking recently about how i think that there's a bug that you can catch about simply enjoying the act of reading Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people will criticize a novel by being like nothing happens or like blah, 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 whatever. And it's like, well, sometimes you, I'm just enjoying the act of reading and the author is amusing me. Like that's Yeah, if, that's it, it. if they're a good writer, they can just talk about a coffee cup and whatever. It yeah. could be a thousand pages. But, uh, I, got, I, got, <laughs> I got one more here. Uh, Carl says, I realize that Catch-22 is a very popular novel, which is the reason why I read it. Having said that, Catch-22 is unequivocally one of the worst novels I've ever read. It's like one of those movies that wins the Oscar, so you watch it and wonder what all the hype was about. Following the plot of Yozarian through his flying missions during the war, I didn't find anything remotely humorous about the novel, not even to the point of giving a half chuckle or even a smile. The book was poorly written. The characters were outrageously, terribly drawn and have no reflection on reality. There is not a single redeemable quality about the book. Perhaps I'm missing something that makes everyone think it was so wonderful, but I thought it was abysmal. And then he signed his review with, uh, uh, I'm not going to say the last name, whatever, Carl, a uh, author of Blood Street. And it's like bold <laughs> to name drop your own book while trashing like. <laughs> yeah. Catch 22 sucks. Now go look at read my Amazon self-published. Yeah. Let that's me put hilarious. a target on my back. That's, a, that's amazing. Uh, my address. You should yeah. read his book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then give him a one star. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, that's all I got for Catch-22. <laughs> awesome. My next one is also what I, another one that I've done on the podcast, All the Pretty Horses. This is a pretty long review, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm sure I'll just stop somewhere when I'm laughing too much. But I think this person's username is Traveler. They gave one star to all the pretty horses. They said interesting descriptions, but that's about all, though. Two not-too-bright teenagers set out for Mexico for adventure or who knows why. They meet up with a boy about 13 (laughs) who's dumber than they are. That leads to their arrest in in a Mexican prison, and no good can come from that. There is gratuitous lust for the teenage daughter of a rich Mexican rancher who turned the teenagers in for one of them having consensual sex with his well-educated daughter who should have known better than to take up with a penniless Texas redneck. (laughs) (laughs) The story becomes tiresome and overly violent, but sex and violence sell, apparently. Only a descriptive writing of the landscape and horses is interesting. He goes on to say a few more things, but I think, like, I think all of those are actually valid. Like, the most valid thing that I find in there is that it is kind of true. Like, why Like why do these two teenagers basically just want to shoot themselves in the foot and go into Mexico? I think I talked about that in my review. Like, the idea of self-imposed poverty yeah like oh like uh i have nothing like i'm done with texas at the age of 16 so i'm just gonna go screw myself over in mexico well they're Um, all they're teenagers i mean i don't think you need an explanation for that no (laughs) no i I don't either i mean stupid stuff (laughs) yeah they're idiots but yeah one star review by traveler (laughs) nice any more for that book nope that's it that's the one review (laughs) i got uh next up is uh Account of Monte Cristo. Ooh, so you okay. know this one's a it's a long book, so you know people like are just gonna some bitch people about slog it, yeah. through it and hate it. Yeah. All right. He- Heather says, did not enjoy the book. It was all based on revenge, which is not my first pick. There were also a crazy number of characters, and many of them had aliases, which just made it harder to follow. I didn't find the characters realistic or likable. 
I would like to think if I spent half my life in prison, I wouldn't spend the other half creating and executing elaborate plans over many years to seek revenge. <laughs> and it's like she she why, might have a point, but <laughs> why wasn't this book from the 1840s about me? Yeah, right. I, I just I hate I hate when a character breaks from like the Heather archetype. It's just awful. Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Funny. And then uh, Edmund says, it is a long book. It should have been 400 pages, not 1,200. It's a great book up until page 225. After that, it's completely unreadable. It's too long, boring, nothing happens, yet it's considered a classic. The final 279 pages, it gets a little better. It's still unreadable. It is not a story of vengeance. It is a story of nothing happens for hundreds of pages. <laughs> I would not say it's a complete waste of time, but it took up a lot of my time. I could have read four <laughs> books in the time it took to read it. <laughs> I think I read somewhere once, though, that like because uh, a lot of novels that we now collect into one book actually came out in serializations. Isn't that true for the count yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, count totally came fun. out in literary magazines, and I'm pretty sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure Dumas was getting paid by the word. Yeah, stretch it out. But also, I mean, there's just so much tension that builds. Like, yeah. I think it's necessary. Yeah, I don't know. I think like, I wonder if there would be a way to, like with Kindle or the way that we have iPhones now or something, to kind of recreate that magic of like serialized literature. Um yeah, release it every. Uh, because that was the that was the water cooler thing before water coolers were invented. People were you know meeting each other in in Paris and just being like, "Did you read the new Monte Cristo?" <laughs> I think that's literally. I think that I think uh, that publishing style has something to do with the term cliffhanger. Because uh, no, one cliffhanger of... cliffhanger was Ambrose. Oh, it was. But yeah, I mean, but he did. Yeah, he did newspapers, Spears. so I mean, that he might have had a serialized story. Or no, that's uh, never mind. Um, uh, uh, Thomas Hardy. Sorry, Thomas Hardy. Oh yeah, Tom Hardy. Yeah. <laughs> um, my next one is a book that I have not done on the podcast, but it is a book that we've both read: Gravity's Rainbow. I knew that there would be people out there hating on Gravity's Rainbow on the internet because. Pretty oh, much ha half the people that even touch the book hate it. The thing that I think is really funny is a one-star review can be really funny if you're just scrolling through looking at all the other reviews. This one is super short and sweet. Jaron Robinson about Gravity's Rainbow set. His title is Book Sucks and the body of the message is Book is Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and then just below him, Jay Smith's also one star says, I can say I read it. Here's a succinct summary of the book. Parabolas, erections, missiles, words. So many words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there you go. A lot of people hate Gravity's Rainbow. Um, I love it. I think I, I think you love it as well. Um, yeah. And, and, you yeah. know, the point of this isn't to argue with them. It's just, you know, that's your opinion. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I, I know a lot of people who hate Gravity's Rainbow because I, I'm i such a big Pynchon fan. A lot of people, I think a lot of people dive into Pynchon kind of being like, I'll just go for Gravity's Rainbow because that's the most well-known. But I don't think that that's necessarily a great idea. Um, but whatever. Yeah, it's pretty dense. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Uh, next one I got is... Uh, the Grapes of Wrath by mm. John Steinbeck. So user, uh, maybe it, user Batman, it might be 
I don't know. It's Batman. Damn. I did not I did not enjoy this book. Okay, there were some really interesting parts, like a random scene with an upside-down turtle illustrating how futile life is or something, and the description is nice. That being said, sometimes there's too much of it. I don't need a full paragraph of Grandpa scratching under his testicles. Thanks. The whole <laughs> book can be summarized as such. We hate this farm. Let's go on a long journey to California to make money working in a vineyard. Long journeys suck. California sucks. <laughs> grapes of wrath, more like grapes of trash. Whoa. <laughs> 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 might have been a high school like you know yeah required required yeah. reading yeah <laughs> but then why do you need to go make a review about it that's true i mean well what's fun were you having a hard time finding trash reviews of classics because like what i did like some of the classic like real classic books i would type in like i tried to find ones for crime and punishment and then it would just be a bunch of people ragging on the actual edition that you get from amazon Oh, there's a lot like, of that. And people be like, like yeah. poorly constructed book is glued together. One star. <laughs> hate you. There was a lot of Monte Cristos that showed up with like ridiculously small print and like torn covers and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of reviews for that. So something's going on in shipping. Um, my next one is um, Kafka on the Shore by Murakami. Uh, I think like I've reviewed uh, Killing Commentadore by Murakami on the podcast before, but far and away my favorite novel of his is Kafka on the Shore, so I went for the one stars of that. User W, I'm going to read his whole thing because the end is a, is a surprise twist, but <laughs> user W says, underdeveloped writing, I feel I'm being patronized. This novel could have been written by a third grader channeling his tough boy ego in hopes to emulate the rapist he'll be when he's 15. There's no binding agent in the plot of the novel, only gratuitous violence, abuse of sex, and rape. Murakami's lazily contrived magic realism fails as a carrying agent for 400 of romanticizing 15-year-old losers. Kafka's thought actions and anatomy are so repetitive i felt i was reading copy and pasted content the fact that a grown and accomplished man wrote this and that people like this has plunged me even further into asexuality trash <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> what dude like you're like nuts um it's just a book man it's a book it's just put book. it down yeah turn your turn your head yeah close your eyes oh <laughs> Oh, so, man. yeah, I, no. I thought the twist was going to be like Murakami remains my favorite author, but I hate this. Or like, <laughs> <laughs> I know, like he's he's my uncle, but you know, <laughs> this book sucks. And uh, <laughs> another, I'm not going to read his whole review, but same book. Uh, uh, user JG says, "Don't waste your time." And a few classic sentences from his is: "The conversation with cat, cat, cats are insipid drivel. The sexy bits would barely make a nun blush and do nothing to advance the story. There's no point in any of it, and it's not interesting. Life is too short. Read Lewis Carroll if you like fantasy." Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So that was my last one. That was my. I those were my four books for one star reviews. Do you nice. have one more? I have one more. Are you ready for a uh, a wild one? I'm ready. So I have uh, the Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. Mm. One Monica star says, review. <laughs> That's <Monica>. bold. That's <laughs> bold. One star reviews of Anne Frank's diary. Monica says, "Here's my advice to you: Don't you ever pick this book. Don't start reading it." because it's only a big waste of time and life. It's extremely unbearably boring and useless. I have no idea how this can be a bestseller book. I've been trying to finish it, but every time I read it, I only want to throw it out of the window. The whole time she speaks about Peter 
and now she really wants to talk to him and she dreams about him and blah 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 why they even keep printing this book she is only 15 years old (laughs) (laughs) and then uh so uh cynthia (laughs) cynthia said who who wrote that what was the username of the first one monica uh (laughs) cynthia says she kept on ranting about how much she detested the people she was with inside the annex it's annoying sorry Anne. i have nothing against you but you kept on going over and over about your feelings of animosity that it no longer was amusing. <laughs> One star. feel like it's completely going over there. Like it's a historical <laughs> document from a teenage girl who lived in Nazi Germany. Like that's, yeah. that's the context for everything. Not <laughs> You're like, uh, try again, <laughs> try again, trash. <laughs> oh God. I heard, I, I heard recently <laughs> that, um, I heard recently that Anne Frank actually wrote a piece of fiction that they're publishing. Really? Yeah, there's like, so like she, there obviously her diary is her most well-known work, but then there was like some other thing that she wrote like years earlier that they're just publishing with like, with, you know, like uh, annotate, annotated versions of like giving like okay. context and stuff. So that might be pretty that's, cool. That's interesting. Nice. So, uh, so yeah, one star reviews. You can play this at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> think of your top, think of your favorite, favorite book ever beyond judgment and then watch people judge it (laughs) beyond judgment awesome (laughs) so yeah we'll come back to that at some point because that was funny yeah definitely uh so this week i think i'm going first right yes yes mark's first okay here we go so so i kind of struggled with this one it wasn't exactly my type of book but i think it's important you know like with anything else to be open to new things, you might find some part of it you like, or, you know, find out what doesn't work for you. Uh, so the book I read this week was a memoir. Um, it was called let's pretend this never happened. A mostly true memoir by Jenny Lawson. Now, like if you look back, do you remember like the different stages of humor in your life? Like what you found funny in different periods or what you leaned on to make others laugh? Like yeah, for sure. Time. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, yeah, you go through like the whole, like when you're young, like swearing is funny and then something yeah. else. And obviously there are parts where being mean is funny. Yeah, there's all sorts of like shameful stages and you're, you just go, you know, oh, what was I thinking? Or why did, why did that appeal to me? But, you know, there's like some periods I look back on and really hate. Like the whole, the whole like random, random era got to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like it at the, at the time, uh, but it was seemed to be really big. And it was just like funny to say whatever popped into your head with like enthusiasm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was awful. You know, but I feel like, like I, I feel I think I still know people who do that, but I think that they're good at it now. <laughs> like, okay. in, like instead <laughs> of like something just like really stupid, they're like it like they say stuff and it's really funny. But <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, when I say that, I, it's like almost commercialized randomness like it was always like and there was a set you know arsenal of things that were almost labeled as random or whatever Mm -hmm. like tacos and yeah pizza yeah Yeah, yeah. cats and whatever unicorns and shit but i mean uh there was also that thing where people were saying uh i didn't remember this in high school it was like uh people would say something and then they'd go and by that i mean and then it'd be like a setup for like right. something that's the opposite. And that that just I hated that so much. 
It was like, oh, I just finished my homework. And then you like pause for effect and you're like, oh, and by that, I mean, I took a nap or whatever. Uh, <laughs> awful. Uh, well, the book that I read this week is just straight up drenched in relentless like sarcasm. Mm-hmm. And the style does, it feels like it's sort of a product of a different era, era which is like insane to say because it's only, it's like six or se- seven years old. But, you know, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, I mean, doesn't it just seem like things are accelerating really quickly? Like, yeah, I lately? mean, I think, yeah, part, <laughs> part of that is age, but I think, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just my own experience. Like, that, it seems like the expiration date on things is a lot shorter and shorter. Right. Humor definitely falls into that trap. Um, so, yeah, this is a comedic memoir and you know some i i had some like issues with the narrative voice in it because it felt like it was from like a different time or like an earlier internet age even though it's only 2012 right uh but either way like anyways there were some really awesome stories in this book because jenny lawson's like her childhood was ridiculous um so she's a famous pretty famous blogger she goes by the blog s Mm-hmm. which was the name of her website. And eventually, you know, she pivoted into publishing and this was her debut work. So it's like, uh, what, what do you think is the best age to write a memoir? I, I don't think that that can be categorized. Cause I think like, yeah. every, every answer is the wrong answer. You know, like, you, <laughs> like, like you would want to hear a memoir from like a 90 year old man, but at the same time, like it's probably just as valuable to hear a memoir from a 15 year old girl in Nazi Germany, one star and Frank. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I know, but the thing is if you, so let's say you're a really good writer, you write a memoir at like 30, and it's mm-hmm. a fantastic. Don't you kind of feel obligated to write another one, like at sixty? Or right. Like, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. you got yeah. you're setting yourself up. But so Jenny Lawson wrote this, I think, when she was thirty eight. Um, it's about all the experiences that shaped her, and you know the absurd things that she survived growing up in rural Texas. Um, but actually, now that I think about it, it's probably a good idea to write a memoir early, just because you're closer to those you know, childhood experiences Mm -hmm. and like before memory, like fades away some of the details. How did this book, because I, I think you're right that this book is kind of like out of your alley. So like, how did this book come to you? I feel like I would never be like, Mark's definitely going to read Jenny Lawson. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I saw some, uh, actually I saw a Twitter thread that was like, that I think uh, started with her and she just asked the question like, what's the funniest book you ever read? And like, I, I went and looked through a lot of the answers and I saw a lot of people talking about books that I really liked. I saw some suggestions that I went and checked out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were like, your book, your right. book was hilarious. And so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like a lot of people said that. So I was like, oh shit, I gotta, you know, check this out. Cause uh, it was from people who were saying like, oh, well, I think the funniest book is whatever, uh, Confederacy of Dunces, but like your book's awesome. Or like things like that, you know, like things yeah. that I related to. And, you know, they gave like a cosign. So I wanted to check it out. Uh, so, yeah, there's some really good stories here about like how her f- dysfunctional family would operate. Like her father would have like taxidermied animals all over the house and mm. uh, puppets made out of roadkill. And like there were just a lot of crazy animal stories, like a gang of wild 
quails that would chase her and her sister around and like follow them into their school and stuff. Um, there's a lot of good, a lot of stories about almost dying. Uh, and she also, but you know, she also opens up about her struggles with, you know, panic attacks and anxiety and even things like, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and other things. And, you know, she's not afraid to be super transparent in her writing. And I think mm-hmm. that's what like made her, uh, blog really popular back in the day. I'm pretty sure she has a, a big Twitter following now too. And, you know, I think that's cool how like writing and blogging and even stuff, you know, just like podcasts can provide another outlet for dealing with like that social anxiety or introversion. Like right. she talks, she, she can elaborate and talk like a ton about being introverted or anxious and stuff. So it like, it's a nice outlet to let things out. Um, you know, so her stories made me think of my own experiences or funny stories with animals and they were a lot less dysfunctional than hers and um, a little more ordinary, but still interesting to think about. Uh, so I had a couple here, like one, I, I had an Alaskan Malmute when I was like around 10. Do you know what that is? Type it's of dog. A type of dog, but I can't picture it in my mind. It's I'll Google it's image like, search right now. It's like <laughs> the biggest dog that there is. Okay. It's like a giant wolf. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They're huge. Um, his name King. So I was, and you know, he would follow me around and stuff and doing, I was doing 10 year old shit <laughs> messing around <laughs> with this, like uh pump action air rifle out, out in, in the woods and backyard. Nice. And you know, out of some weird uh, burst of bravado, I guess I, I decided to, take a shot at a, a goose that I saw across like the pond in my backyard. And I was, it was all the way on the other side. It was probably like, probably like 250 feet or something at the opposite mm-hmm. end. And I, I would just, I thought I was just like, you know, scared or something. It would take off, but I ended up one shotting it right in the head and just like instantly Whoa. felt really bad. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. It was the, like my first and last hunting I'll ever do, but it was just like, uh, uh, once one in a million shot or whatever, but I was just, you know, having an Oh shit moment and being like, Oh God, I like felt bad or whatever. And meanwhile, my dog who I didn't even think could swim, like I never saw it. It's pretty old at this point. You know, he jumped right into the water, swam all the way across, grabbed the goose, swam back and just dropped it at my feet. Like it was like trained to do that. Whoa. So it was like, it was kind of like ingrained. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that's crazy. Did you end up like going to your parents and being like, ah? Yeah, and it was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I forget what happened afterwards, but yeah. Pretty sure we uh, buried it or something. But yeah, first and last hunting experience. Damn. And then that's anyway, crazy. like other, other stories like that, like uh, I got full on kicked by a miniature horse once, like right in the chest. And I was like, probably. <laughs> 12 or 13 or something dude too many hardcore experiences i've seen your mini horses so (laughs) this was a different one but yeah knock the knock the wind right out of me you know and you think you're dying and all that yeah uh yeah i grew up around farm-ish type area or a lot of so was was that the same story with her like was she was jenny lawson growing up around like farm sort of stuff uh, sort of, yeah, a ton of, her dad just had this fascination with wild animals. He would, like, bring, like, live bobcats home and shit like that. It's just, like, <laughs> halfway dangerous, or more than halfway dangerous, but really, really crazy stories, and they were, like, you know, 
it led to like the way that she handled it and the way that her sister handled it were so different mm-hmm. with how like she, you know, let it make make her more of like an outcast at school and stuff or like, you know, not not let it not let it do that. But you know what I mean? They they just like uh, had different outcomes for them and her sister was kind of unfazed. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, it just made me think of like some of those uh, things that I had. I like I had some run-ins with like rat snakes and snapping turtles too and stuff. Do you have any? You have any good stories like that? Random. Uh, well, we grew up in the same area. I was a little less farmy than you, but yeah, I mean, I have I have some random animals. So, well, first of all, snapping turtles. That was like a thing at in the local park near in our hometown. It was like. You had to, you knew from like being a kid that like snapping turtles were a possibility uh, in the yeah. pond and stuff like that. So you used to hear every once in a while like oh whatever Mike found a snapping turtle or whatever. Um, I guess my most prominent like childhood memory of like weird animal stuff is like my yard was pretty was large for a small child to like play around when I was a kid. I remember being in the yard once and. Not too far away, there was like a full-fledged farm um, near my house. And I remember just playing at the edge of my yard once, and then two people just rode out of the woods like on horses. But obviously this is, you know, the mid to late 90s. So I had never really kind of seen people on horses unless it was some sort of like parade or or like event or something. So to just be in your natural environment and then these two people just came out of my and and at that time when you're so young, you kind of consider everything in that domain to be yours. Yeah. (laughs) So it was sort of like these two people are just riding out of the woods on these giant horses. It was really kind of it was sort of bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be like disorienting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Seems like they came out of a time machine or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so you know, this book, it's got a ton of jokes in it. Like, it, you'll just, I'll read a section and you'll see, like, how it is. Like, there's sarcasm everywhere. There's footnotes. There's a lot of talking directly to the editor and all that. Like, the words, uh, the words vagina and chupacabra pop up really often. Right. Like, you know, okay. Yeah. No, I know what you're, I know what you're talking about. It's actually interesting (laughs) what you're talking about, how you can look back and be like, this was blog speak, like back when the internet wasn't fully formed. Definitely. Yeah. But you know, there's also, there's also some moments where she gets really serious about her mental health and, you know, experiences that you can't break up too much with humor. So like I wanted to, that, that ended up being like the parts that I liked the most, like, uh, so I want to read this section where she kind of details the struggles that she and her husband, Victor, had with trying to uh, have a child. Okay. Okay. Get prepared, because this chapter is kind of depressing and is about dead babies. I know. you, But they don't all die. In the end, everything is fine. Mostly. If you just forget about all those dead babies, or if you call them fetuses, calling them fetuses makes it feel more clinical and less sad, but I'm pretty sure I get to call them whatever I want because they're my dead babies. And no, I'm not calling them babies instead of fetuses for any political reason because I'm actually totally pro-choice and you can do whatever you want with your body. But stop hijacking, stop hijacking this chapter, asshole, because this is about me. God, you have a problem. Also, my editor is all, what the fuck are you doing? How are you going to build up suspense if you just gave away the entire chapter in the first paragraph, don't you know about the six elements of drama? 
And I'm all, no, but I know when I go to see a sad movie, I always want someone to run in right before the sad scene and be like, okay, Bambi's mom is about to bite it, but it's totally going to be okay in the end. Don't freak. And that's what I just did for you. You're welcome. My editor just pointed out that I just ruined Bambi for everyone who hasn't seen it, but it's fucking Bambi, y'all. It's not, it's totally not my fault if you haven't seen Bambi yet. It's been out for years. <laughs> hey, have you heard about this new thing called a sandwich yet? It's awesome. My editor says I'm being purposely fatuous. I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad, so I'm going to go back up to the top and add a spoiler alert. I'm like a goddamn saint. I had always wanted to be a mother. I didn't really like other people's babies, but I never considered that a job requirement, as I assumed that my baby would be kick-ass, or would at least quickly turn into a kid. When I was little, I always wanted to have a slumber party, but my parents were too smart to ever agree to have one, and so I told myself that one day when I was old enough, I'd have a kid and have a slumber party with her every night. That seems like a ridiculous reason for having a child, but there are worse ones. At my core, though, was a need that I couldn't quite verbalize. I wanted to be part of my family legacy. I wanted to give a child the kind of magical childhood I wanted. I wanted to see a small reflection of myself and the generations before me in a new face and be reborn again, too. I wanted to have someone I could beat at Scrabble. Victor and I picked out names, bought baby sweaters, and wondered what our lives would be like as parents. I was nervous, but too sick to really worry. A few weeks before the second trimester, Victor and I went into the doctor's office for an ultrasound. I hadn't slept much that night because I'd had a panic attack and ended up calling my sister at midnight, hysterically yelling, Oh my God, what if the baby's a Republican? <laughs> then she hung up on me because she enjoys being unsupportive. Or maybe she was mad that I, on that I call her only at midnight when I'm having panic attacks. I don't really know. What I do know, though, was that I was braced to hear almost anything in that exam room. It's twins. It's triplets. It's a Republican. It's a small bear. Granted, that last one seemed unlikely, but I was mentally prepared for almost anything. Anything except for what the doctor actually told us. That, that there was no heartbeat. That the baby was dead. That these things happened for the best. And this is when I broke. It wasn't obvious from the outside. I didn't cry. I didn't scream. I went numb. And then I realized that this was all my fault. If I'd gone to church or believed in the right God, this wouldn't have happened. The exam room door was the unlucky number that falls after 12. And I'd wanted to ask for another room, but had been too embarrassed to say why. If I demanded another room, the baby would still be alive. There were a million reasons why this was happening, and all of them were there because of me. I numbly followed Victor down the halls, and for the first time in my life, I seriously considered suicide. I wondered if I would be fast enough to slip away from Victor before he noticed that I was gone. I wondered if the building was tall enough to kill me if I jumped, or if I'd just wake up, broken physically as well as mentally, in a hospital bed. I wondered what I could do to not have to ever deal with this, because I knew I wasn't strong enough to come out whole on the other side. Victor seemed to sense that I was planning on running, or maybe he was just on autopilot himself, because he held onto my arm almost painfully, leaving me no room for escape. We went home, and while I waited to miscarry, I had Victor call everyone and tell them to never, ever mention this to me again. No flowers, no I'm sorry's, nothing, because I knew that the only way I could survive this would be to block it from my mind. And that might have been easier to do, except for the fact that I didn't miscarry. I continued to carry the baby for another month, and then I had a nervous breakdown. I'm still not sure what triggered it, but my coworkers found me crying hysterically in my office. I didn't even recognize the sounds as human, and I remember wondering what that horrible noise was until I realized it was me, keening uncontrollably until I finally exhausted myself. 
Victor took me home and my doctor eventually realized I needed this to end immediately and perform the surgery. There were complications from the procedure and I ended up having a painful hemorrhaging miscarriage that night. A week later, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and put on an antidepressant that made me suicidal, which is not really how an antidepressant is supposed to work, turns out. Victor found me trawling online for suicide message boards, pulled my internet access, and got me on another drug that worked. My psychiatrist worked with me until I was eventually able to leave the house without having a breakdown, and then he mailed me a letter telling me that he was retiring suddenly, which I'm pretty sure is code for, you're too fucked up even for me. I'm totally <laughs> breaking up with you. But that was fine because I was better and stronger and ready to try again. And then I got pregnant again, and then I lost it again. I switched doctors and demanded to be tested for everything in the books. That's when I found out that I had antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which I could barely even spell. I went home and looked it up on the internet and it basically said, you're going to die. But then my doctor told me that it wasn't that big of a deal. It's a rare autoimmune disease that causes blood clots and worsens during pregnancy. I told her that I was pretty sure that I also had polio and testicular cancer, and she said that I wasn't allowed to read WebMD anymore. I was put on a regimen of baby aspirin, and I was all, seriously, fucking baby aspirin? But then my doctor assured me that it would thin my blood enough to stop having miscarriages. And that's when I had another miscarriage. Coincidentally, this is the same time when I screamed, fuck baby aspirin, and my doctor agreed to prescribe a heavy-duty treatment of expensive blood thinners, and I was all, hell yeah. And then she said, here's your giant duffel bag of syringes that you can inject a medication directly into your bloodstream. And I thought, oh, I have made a terrible mistake. But by then it was too late to back out because I'd read all the internet horror stories about women having strokes because of this blood disease. And I thought that perhaps all the blood thinners would help the polio that I'd also diagnosed myself with. So I took a deep breath and I started giving myself injections in the stomach twice a day. Awesome. And after... No, I'm going to cut it off there. I realized I picked way too long of a section to read, but you need to know everything works out nicely in the end. <laughs> Damn, yeah, that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that part, I don't, I guess I, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but yeah, um, I like, like, how she was really able to break away from the humor for a little bit and, you know, just open up to the reader, like, because there were a lot of parts where it was just very, very saturated, uh, and, you know, she wasn't able to, like, break away like that. But, I mean, it's also the subject matter and everything. But anyways, you know, while I wasn't completely in love with, like, the narrative voice, the stories in the book are great. And, you know, it kept me interested. So uh, I would recommend checking it out. Yeah, that was really crazy. I, It's kind of, yeah, like we were saying before about early internet speak, but then also obviously people got into her because she's like talented with kind of like whipping you around a corner i would say yeah yeah and that's that's exactly what happens like there's a lot of like uh oh you thought like that's bad like <laughs> yeah or uh yeah my my dad did some crazy shit but um and then it takes a, another turn because and then you know she's just drawing from her real experiences, which is crazy. And there's all like the coolest part is there's all these pictures to back it up too, like all these oh, like nice. taxidermy stuff. And you see, yeah, yeah. There's all this thing. You're like, Oh, you're, you're making that up or whatever. But you, then she's got photographic proof, like <laughs> <laughs> childhood so, her next to some gross, like animals and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> her dad tricked her and her sister with like a roadkill, like squirrel, like hand puppet. He said it was like a magic squirrel. So she just had like a uh, traumatic experience. Dude, nowadays it sounds like this guy would like be in jail or something. Yeah. 
But anyways, yeah. Uh, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, a mostly true memoir by Jenny Lawson. Nice. Yeah, that's pre- that was pretty cool. The title reminds me of uh, the Tom Robbins um, autobiography, Tibetan Beach Pie, Peach Pie, where he's like, he's like, this is my autobiography, and most of it's true, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he's super secretive. Yeah. So I bet a lot of that isn't true. Probably he's not. like, false flag. <laughs> false flag, yeah. He wants you to uh, get misled. Yeah. Cool. Good job. That was cool. Thanks. So what do you got? Okay. Um, I'll just dive right in. My um, book this week is another Japanese novelist. And this was kind of, this kind of comes off the tales of, like I said, like you kind of have like your first point of contact for, you know, like, like to you, who are some famous Japanese novelists? Uh, Murakami. Mishima. Yeah. Murakami. Yeah. Mishima. Ishiguro. Yeah. Yep, Banana Yoshimoto. Yeah, yeah, Banana Yoshimoto. Yeah, yeah. So like to like that first wave, you know, I read some Mishima and I read some Murakami and then it's sort of like, well, who else is there? And then like the next, like the literally the next person, maybe in a lot of people's first wave from like a different generation, like in the 60s, 70s and 80s would be Kobo Abe. Have you ever heard that name? I've seen Abe before because Vintage, the the uh, publisher that I like, yeah vintage they they have some of this stuff i've I've seen the name yeah so kobo i'm doing the 1962 novel the woman in the dunes by kobo abe which is his most famous um novel for sure um so kobo abe is he was born in 1924 he died in 1993 at the age of 68 he died like pretty suddenly of like heart complications like but nothing too dramatic, not like his friend Mishima. So he did, <laughs> so he did know Mishima. Um, I couldn't find too much information online about their friendship, but I think they did know each other. And that, and to be honest, that's probably how I found him sort of like in the related artists section of Wikipedia or something like that. Um, Abe has like a really interesting kind of literary theme that is a little bit connected to his upbringing so he was born in tokyo in uh, 1924 but he actually grew up in manchuria which is like a northeastern region of china um Mm -hmm. but his father was in like medical research and was a doctor so there was like times throughout his life where he was basically like shortly in tokyo and then shortly in china like in manchuria and like kind of like bouncing all around and the reason why I bring that up is because, and it says right here on, in Wikipedia in 1978, in an interview, he said, I'm essentially a man without a home. This may be what lies behind the hometown phobia that runs in the depth of my feelings. All things that are valued for their stability offend me. So I think that that's definitely a good thing to keep in mind for his style of writing, but also for The Woman in the Dunes, which is definitely his most famous novel. Um Quick autobiographical stuff before I get into the plot of the book, but he, you know, he goes to Tokyo. He ends up going to Tokyo Imperial University in 1943 to study medicine. A really interesting quote that I think, I mean, you never know. I I haven't read like a Kobo Abe biography or anything, but it may be influenced, you know, like he wanted to go into 
the family business of medicine or something like that. Um, But a really interesting quote from him is, uh, quote, the students who specialized in medicine were exempted from becoming soldiers. My friends who chose the humanities were killed in the war. So that's like a pretty interesting sort of like, I'm like a pacifist and like, I'm going to become a doctor or supposedly try to be a doctor just so I don't like get drafted and killed. Yeah. Um, so this is all happening. <laughs> yeah. Around like World War Two and stuff like that. Eventually he like he returns to Manchuria after the end of World War Two and his father like passes away. He ends up eventually getting his medical degree after the war in 1948. And he jokingly once said that he was allowed to graduate only on the condition that he would not practice. So he basically was, he was a medical student who became, who got his degree in medicine, but actually never practiced it. Like he followed through with that. I don't know if he was, you know, placating his like father and parents as like a backup plan or something, but pretty much immediately upon graduating, he, you know, he, um, well, actually, before graduating, he he married his wife and they were kind of uh, they were politically active, like in the Japanese Communist Party and pretty much like all communists. I feel like I read about or end up reading about like in different you know communist parties throughout the world at that time. It's like he joined it, but then also like his literary success and also his actual ideas were kind of like at odds with the communist party so it's like he (laughs) he joined it but then eventually he's like it's like this is like they're too rigid and like i want to leave and like whatever and all these other things so his literary success kind of pushes him more towards you know leaving or not being as serious about that about uh communism and You know, there's some interesting parts in here, but like basically, like I said, he never kind of pursued his medical degree. I think it says somewhere here on Wikipedia that like he sold pickles like in the street or something like that. Like it's just sort of, you know, his actual medical training had nothing to do with his life. And even throughout school, he was writing like short stories and plays. He's again, like another Japanese author, probably... Maybe it's like a like a feature of that generation, but he is very much like Mishima where it's like, okay, he wrote like a ton of novels. He has collections of short stories and plays and essays. Like he just wrote a lot. Like he definitely wrote a lot. Um, How would you classify like what kind of uh, subject matter did he, is it really varied or like? Um, there's a really good quote from... Um, in the article, uh, an article from the New York Times in 1993 um, by James Sterngold uh, was basically had, had a good quote from kind of his theme. But he, his, uh, Sterngold says, his was a threatening world of people who frequently lose their way and lose their identities, fighting against always insurmountable odds to unravel the, uh, to unravel the senseless events that have left them doomed. Um, he was often called the Japanese Kafka, even though he didn't really love that thing, like, like love that description, but he does have a few that short stories. That always happens. Yeah, it's if you, true. If you, if you, yeah. if you call someone like the blank blank yeah they're like like, uh uh, not really (laughs) um yeah like 
Yeah. So, but he did have stories where, like, like he had one story where a man gets transformed into a plant, and another one, you know. Oh, he set himself up. Then. Yeah, he yeah. kind of said, "Well, you, <laughs> well, you know, Kafka doesn't have the the ownership of people turning into other things." <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so that's like a brief kind of history of Kobo Abe. But to get into kind of how all those quotes are going to come together, let's talk about the woman in the dunes. Uh, the Woman in the Dunes is like a really cool book. It's very tense. It's almost thriller-ish. And uh, the basic storyline is you start out reading about this guy. Another interesting biographical fact is that Abe was interested at a young age in entomology. So like the study and collecting of bugs and stuff like that. Um, okay. So you start out, there's this guy just wandering around all of these like sand dunes that are kind of near an ocean, but like there's basically like a massive amount of sand dunes in this one area of Japan. And he's kind of wandering around and his goal is to find his like life's ambition is to find a, a certain type of beetle that he thinks if he can find the variation, then he'll like be in some of his favorite like field journals and stuff. So in some ways, you're like the main character is like he's a teacher who has like three days vacation from work and he's just sort of nerdy and he's like, I'm going to go collect bugs. So he's out in the dunes and he meets like a bunch of guys out in the sand who are like, hey, are you like a government inspection person? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, nah, I'm just like collecting bugs. It's chill. And they're like, that's cool. And then he eventually kind of has this sort of like daydreamy type of thing where you get some context for why he's kind of listless at the moment. It seems like he there's nothing really solid, but he's sort of like separated from his wife or like they've definitely been having like problems or something like that. And then he kind of he spends too much time in in the dunes, like searching for bugs so that he misses like the last bus home. So the people that he ended up seeing there, they just go to him and they say, hey, like you can spend the night here. Don't like waste your time going back towards the highway. It'll take a long time to get back there and you can just stay with one of us. He's like, that's really cool. Like, thank you so much. You know, like why, you know, there's no cause for suspicion at that point. (laughs) So the way that the village that he discovered is set up is that there are these giant sand pits and like the houses are traditional Japanese houses that are at the bottom of sand pits. So he's just kind of going along with the whole thing being like, Oh my God, you're so hospitable. Thanks for letting me stay the night. And he stays the night with a woman who's like sort of strange, but he's just like, this is cool. Like he cooks her and she cooks him a nice meal. And, you know, he learns about how the sand kind of encroaches on their houses and, you know, how their whole society works. And he's like, you guys are crazy, but I'm only here for one night. And then when he wakes up the next day, they the people from the village have taken the ladder that he climbed down into the pit away. Oh, God. So he's basically goes to this woman and he's like, what are you doing? Like, I am a teacher. I have like documents and like I need to get back to work and I only have like a three day vacation. What the hell is happening? And he starts to observe her life down at the bottom of the sandpit. She basically spends all of her time cleaning the house to get sand out of it and make sure that sand isn't in the water and sand isn't in the food. And, you know, there's no electricity down there and it's a very traditional way of living. And then all night she shovels sand into these buckets that then the people from the village come and haul up and take away. 
just to avoid the sand collapsing over their own houses. <laughs> so in a weird way, it's like, it's kind of this world that you can't really imagine existing. Like it's not practical. Like why would these people ever do this? But at the same time, it's metaphorical for like what is life? What is sand? You know, like all you're really doing is like shoveling sand to survive. Yeah. Um, so you find yourself like a horror. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's like, and the entire book has a very tense feeling of holy shit. Like this guy is just trapped here and it's horrible. (laughs) Um, There are some kind of mitigating factors like the woman who he's stuck with. He obviously, you know, put two animals in a cage and they'll end up mating and stuff like that. So he does develop some sort of feelings for her and she tells him the history of how her her, like husband died in a sandstorm and stuff like that um but to give you a flavor of why um koba abe is such a good writer and like why this all makes sense is he puts you into that metaphorical situation and then let's just i'm gonna read you one thing that he writes about sand it's a quote from the book it's pretty short Certainly sand was not suitable for life, yet was a stationary condition absolutely indispensable for existence? Didn't unpleasant competition arise precisely because one tried to cling to a fixed position? If one were to give up a fixed position and abandon oneself to the movement of the sands, competition would soon stop. Actually, in the desert, flowers bloom and insects and other animals live their lives. The creatures were able to escape competition through their great ability to adjust. While he mused on the effect of the flowing sands, he was seized from time to time by hallucinations in which he himself began to move with the flow. So you see how that quote kind of ties back into like he never really like had a home. He's all about like Mm -hmm. adjusting to new situations like and there's a lot of sort of philosophical wonderings about sand and time um, and repetition and um, just all really kind of interesting things like that. Another quote, um, this is a little bit more about like modern times and the importance of news and stuff. He says... Quote, there wasn't a single item of importance in the newspaper, a tower of illusion, all of it made of illusory bricks and full of holes. If life were made up of only important things, it really would be a dangerous house of glass, scarcely to be handled carelessly. But every day life was exactly like the headlines. And so everybody knowing the meaningless and so everybody knowing the meaninglessness of existence sets the center of his compass at his own home. So I think all of these things kind of come together with those you know what i mentioned before about how he's like kind of doesn't really like permanence and stuff like that and sand is the perfect metaphor for you know being trapped in the dunes with this constant movement and uh there's just like a constant sort of threat of encroach encroachment from this sand that they have to get rid of and the novel goes into really cool places too like obviously he builds the tension and the guy has his own designs about how he's going to get the hell out of there and he keeps secrets from the woman and stuff like that. It's a pretty quick read. I think I remember it being like, I only read it in like a few weeks. I was also, I was reading this book when it was really, really hot outside, <laughs> which, yeah. which was the perfect setting for just, Oh my God. It's like such a nightmare. Like what would you do? <laughs> you know, you wake up one day and it's like, I'm stuck in the sandpit with this woman. Yeah. Claustrophobic. Um, another sort of interesting tidbit about, kind of Kobo Abe's success, but also if you want to get into the story of this um, 
of this concept and also Kobo Abe's career. Woman in the Dunes was also made in, in 1964. So the book is published in 62 and pretty much immediately, considering how long it would take to get you know the movie off the ground and everything, in 1964, it's a Japanese new wave film directed by Hiroshi Teshigahara and Kobo Abe writes the script. So the movie, the book isn't that long and the movie is two and a half hours. So it really is not that derivative from like, they didn't really take that much out. Like the novel is okay. very much um, like the film. And also it's, it's a critically acclaimed, um, it's a critically acclaimed movie. Like it's in the Criterion Collection. Roger Ebert had good things to say about it. It won have, the special. Have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. Yeah, it's good. And it won the special jury prize at the 1964 Cannes Film Festival. So, like, it was a real movie. It's a really great novel. Um, you can, like, I hate to say this, but you might be able to... I think, you know, don't skip the novel because the novel, you know, as as is always true, the book is better than the movie. But the movie is pretty awesome. Also, to give kudos to, you know, the Japanese production all the way back in the 60s, the woman who they cast in the main role is uh, is just so perfect for the role because her um, her name is Kyoko Kishida and her look, even from just like looking at her face, is very in tune with the novel. Like she is, she has like this cuteness, but also this like scariness. Like she's some okay. somehow cute, but somehow kind of scary. And the one thing I can say about the film as regards to the book is that the people who made the film kind of really understood the like theme of the book. Like there's a lot of really tense music. And like when he's first climbing down the ladder, it's like really filled with tension. But if you were reading the book for the first time, you wouldn't really know why. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seeing the movie for the first time, you wouldn't really know why it's so tense. So... Overall, um, I got into Kobo Abe. I'm sure I'll read other novels of his, but I got into him because he's that next step after Mishima or other Japanese novelists. He certainly influenced like every modern Japanese novelist because he was like a big deal in Japan for sure. And uh, yeah, a woman in the the woman in the dunes is just so full of tension and so crazy and really beautifully written with lots of metaphors about time and sand. So if that's your thing, yeah. That sounds awesome. Like I have a lot of images you put into my head, like from, I don't know, one, as soon as you said it was a movie, like I, uh, you know, took all those descriptions that you had before about the book and then it like put scenes in my head and that's kind of weird how it did that, but, uh, sounds awesome. And, and yeah, there's a ton of metaphors <laughs> and stuff to be made with, uh, sand and that whole routine you described of cleaning up. Like, yeah. Or, every, Every night they have to kind of shovel a certain amount of sand from the base of the pit or else the <laughs> or else the house will be collapsed in the moving sands of the desert. Okay. It's like an hourglass kind of thing. Or yeah, yeah. So it's really and, at the top. And he starts to kind of slowly learn. There are other reasons why he's there. So, you know, okay. if I can no spoilers, but it's yeah. a, it's a really good read. And uh, yeah, I would really suggest it. Kobo Abe, The Woman in the Dunes. Nice. 
Um, so that's both of our book reports. Thanks everyone for listening. It's, this has been shitty book reports. Hopefully they weren't too shitty. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter and Stitcher now at SBR, the podcast, all one word. You can also email us at SBR, the podcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, questions, and, uh, whatever you're feeling. See you next time. See ya.